Welcome to That Reminds Me of a Story, a podcast dedicated to exploring emerging trends in orality and the communication of the gospel. Our podcast focuses on interviewing practitioners, hearing what is happening in the field of orality, and answering common questions about the orality movement. That Reminds Me of a Story is co-hosted by Grant Lovejoy and yours truly, Don Barger. In each episode, we will host conversations with a wide variety of practitioners to discuss the impacts of working with oral preference learners from many different contexts and perspectives. In this episode of That Reminds Me of a Story, uh, we're going to look at a topic that we've kind of alluded to in the past, but we really haven't given it the uh, time and we've not really addressed it as deep as we would like to. So, Grant, in this episode, let's talk about why, what we would say or what we do say to people when they ask us, why well, don't understand, why are you crafting a story? Why don't you just memorize scripture? Well, neither of us is going to oppose uh, people memorizing scripture. We're both no. in favor of that. That's a good practice. Yes. So nothing we'll say here today should be taken as a criticism of memorizing scripture. Uh, but the hesitation I have about using that as a model for trying to communicate biblical stories to people, well, it was re just reinforced for me uh, the last Sunday that I preached in a church here. Uh, after I told a biblical story at some length as part of the sermon, and after the sermon was over, this woman, probably 50-ish, uh, came up to me and she said, I really appreciated your use of Bible storytelling in the sermon. She said, you know, I attended a Bible storytelling training uh, not too long ago. She said, we learned to tell biblical stories chronologically. And she said, you know, I learned a lot. It was very exciting. But she said, I had to tell the story of Nicodemus as sort of my final uh, act in that training. And she said, you know, they wanted us to tell the story from John 3, 1 to 21, word for word, using the English Standard Version. Wow. That would be quite a difficult task. Yeah, wow, is right. And so I told her, I said, you know, I have a couple of things I, I would like to say about that, if you don't mind a little advice. And she said, no, no, no fine, speak on. I said, for one, I said, that, that story is just difficult. Yeah. It just is. Everybody I've ever trained, and my own experience has been, it's difficult. And largely it's because it's, you know, it's two adults sitting around talking. There's not a lot of visual right. element to help you. So I said, don't feel bad about that. Yeah. She said, well, my, my old brain just doesn't learn like it used to. I said, she's, it's not, she's, it doesn't memorize like it used to. That That is right. And I said, don't feel bad about that. Uh, I started trying to learn that story a long time ago when my brain was fresher and it was hard then too. <laughs> but then the other thing I said, you know, I hope this is not nitpicking, but I said, you talked about memorizing the story. And she said, yeah, that's what they, they wanted us to do. They said, memorize the story word for word. And I said, I think that is something that's causing your difficulty in being able right. to tell this story. Absolutely. And that really is sort of the, the crux of this um, you know, decision that I and others have made to encourage people to craft the story for telling. And, uh, you know, it's, I understand that it's, um, you know, it's comforting in some ways to say, I'm telling the story verbatim. Therefore, all, my only responsibility is just to master it and uh, be faithful to it. Mm -hmm. that, that has a, an understandable appeal. But, you know, what happens, and I think this woman is a very fine Christian woman, mature. She told me she's, she does uh, 
you know, in-depth, detailed group Bible studies year after year after year. Um, so, so she's no slouch when it comes to scripture and she's motivated. But if, if what she told me about John 3 and her experience with it is, you know, follows through, she'll be reluctant to try to tell that story anytime, anywhere. Right. Yeah. And to me, that's the great tragedy. That it's a great story and it could be a real blessing to people. But now because of the methodology she's been exhorted to follow, she's unlikely to tell it. Or if she does, instead of being a really powerful, engaging story, someone who's listening will probably notice that she's struggling to get every word exactly right. And that alters the experience of both telling the story and hearing it. You know, I, I'm reminded of, uh, pastors that I've, I've sat under and my, my own pastor, uh, this, this last week was telling, he didn't tell a story, but he used the scripture, but then he did a, he kind of told the story. He, I don't, if you were to ask him, he would not have said, I storied the scripture, but he told that in his own words. And I think that's a practice that's done fairly commonly. And we're not saying that he come out with a new Bible translation. He, he basically was communicating that story in a way that, that summarized the, the points of the story that he was trying to share, but he didn't go into all the detail that was in the story. And I think we do that a lot more than we are accustomed to. Wonder, I wonder sometimes if the hangup that people have is when we talk about crafting a story as if we are creating a story, which is, is not... We're not, we're not creating a story from scratch. We are presenting, we're sharing that biblical story, but we're not uh, purporting to call this a new Bible translation. Right. And that's one reason why, you know, a long time ago, I quit using the term oral Bible. Right. Because it, it was confusing about that very point. You know, as I wrestled with this whole question of, you know, is it legitimate to um, change terminology, change vocabulary in this story? Is it uh, fair to summarize a story or to tell a more detailed and complete version of it? I, I was finally helped the most by thinking back to the doctoral work that I did. And uh, we spent nine months studying the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, huh. and all sorts of theories about them through the years. In that seminar, one of the things that became well, it's really the, the centerpiece of the, the seminar is what is sometimes called the synoptic problem. Now, it's not a problem with scripture. It's a problem with figuring out and trying to explain how the scripture has come to be how it is. And, sure. and the, the essence of the, of the synoptic problem is how is it that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell stories of Jesus at times verbatim? I mean, exactly word for word. And then at other times, there are clear differences in how they've told various incidents in the life of Jesus. And so just, you know, scholars wanting to understand have, have pondered and given all kinds of attention to how did this come to be? I don't propose to offer a solution to the synoptic problem. But <laughs> well, everybody came, was waiting on that. We were just oh, here. It was. We were, yeah, I, I was about, about to, to, to tell the world. And, but what was apparent to me and what is helpful uh, in this talking about story crafting is that the gospel writers, led by God's Spirit, reporting in Scripture what God wanted them to record, to write down, they told the stories of Jesus in a way that it's clearly the same story, and yet there are also differences. 
mm-hmm. in the vocabulary, the level of detail. Sometimes the sequence is not the same. And both are God-inspired. Both achieve the purposes of God. Both are legit. And so fundamentally, I, you know, I, I just came to say, there's more than one way to tell a biblical story, mm-hmm. including the story of Jesus' life and teachings, death, burial, and resurrection. As one of my friends put it, um, if people are resistant to the idea of story crafting, then you just put to them the question, why are there four Gospels? You know, as, as oftentimes questions that we get exist in English because we can even have this discussion in English. In one of the projects that I'm working with right now, there's four different languages um, varying levels of scripture availability and, and uh, no Old Testament, uh, varying levels of how much New Testament is available. And in some groups, there's there's nothing. Uh, how we communicate to that, those people is going to vary, obviously by language, but even in the choice of how you say something is communicated differently to a different audience. And so sometimes... Uh, when we're crafting this in a group and they're, they have four other languages they speak, but they all speak Spanish as well, the, the, at least the people who are doing the crafting. Even when we're telling that story to those four people, those four different languages, those four groups in Spanish, they have different interpretations of what those Spanish words mean when they hear those words. And so even in how we communicate that to those uh, four different groups, we have to be careful how we craft that story to make sure that it really is sharing exactly what the scripture purported or was supposed to be sharing. We don't want to, in our using the same Spanish, we don't want to communicate something that the scripture didn't communicate. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Fred Craddock puts that in a little bit of a jarring way. He says, sometimes you have to say it different to convey the same meaning. Yeah. that That's a much better way of saying what I was trying to say. Yeah. So you have to change your terminology in order for people to understand the meaning, the intent of the original speaker or writer. And, and you, you know, you can find this in the synoptics uh, at many, many places. And, you know, when you, when you ask just the basic questions, why do they have differences in wording or so forth? Um, usually you, you come up with three basic responses to that. Uh, well, three, if you assume that they were careful uh, writers of a complete account. There's a fourth explanation that was more popular years ago that said they were just kind of sloppy and they just made mistakes and didn't realize yeah, Let's it. Let's not go with that fourth option. Yeah, let's I've never that, believed let's that. Let's say there right. are three options. <laughs> right, right. I've never accepted that fourth one as a viable option. So, some, you know, one explanation is that, you know, it's different personalities and they have their own vocabulary. I think that's true. Sure. Uh, the second is that they have somewhat different emphases that they're trying to make, and so they exercise selectivity to make a particular emphasis. And so why? That, so before we move on, what would be a reason you would have a different emphasis, an emphasis on a, a particular story? Well, there are certain aspects of who Jesus was or what he did or said that you think need to be highlighted, and typically it's either because of the circumstance to which you are speaking, or it's the people who are the right. recipients. It, yeah. So in both cases, it really comes together to audience. Okay. And, you know, uh, it's widely accepted that 
Matthew seems to have written for a Jewish audience. Uh, Luke is very straightforward that he's written for the benefit of Theophilus, who apparently is a Gentile, and judging from how Luke uh, frequently explains Aramaic terms for people or provides details of geography from um, Roman Palestine, then it's apparent he's writing for someone who's not intimately acquainted with Judaism nor um, that part of uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. And so so that that requires a different approach in how you explain stuff than someone who was vastly familiar with those things. And so to reiterate and go into great detail, it would be like, why are you doing this? Obviously we know that. Right. And, and so, you know, it is uh, trying to avoid uh, insulting people's intelligence and also avoid leaving them in the dark by assuming too much knowledge. Right. And if you, if, if a person were to get out the temptation story, as Matthew tells it in chapter four and Luke tells it in chapter four as well, and you look down through there, you know, it's obvious this is the same story, the same incident. This is not mm-hmm. two kind of sort of similar incidents, but it's the same incident. You have the same characters involved. You have the same setting in the wilderness. You have the same basic activity of temptation. You have the same three temptations. You have mm. essentially the same response from Jesus to those three. And you wind up with him not having succumbed to those temptations. So you, if you look at it straight through, you say, this is um, the core story. And the things that they have in common surely are things that we ought to keep uh, in common. But right. if you start looking at some of the detail, you realize, ah, Matthew is writing this for the benefit of a Jewish audience, and it shows. And Luke is writing for a Gentile audience, and it shows. Right. To take just a couple of examples. Um, in Matthew's account, he refers to that creature who was tempting Jesus, refers to him as the devil, and then refers to him also as Satan, and refers to him as the tempter. Hmm. He's the tempter sometimes, he's the devil frequently, and at least in one occasion, Jesus refers to him as Satan. Yeah. But we're talking so, about the same person. Talking or... about the same same person, same character. Yeah, For a Jewish audience, uh, knowing that it's the same one creature that is the tempter and the devil and Satan, no problem. They've got it. But to somebody who doesn't know the the, uh, background of Jewish belief about that, they may think when you hear three different terms that somehow you've gotten three different it's kind of a, you know, tag team tempting situation or whatever, you know, who are these three different people? So, Luke in his account, solves that problem. All the way through, he just refers to him as the devil. Yeah, so it's the same story, and it's the same character, as you said, but it's word choices are different. Right, and it seems to have clear intentionality. Luke was trying to simplify. He did simplify. He used one term consistently, where Matthew used three different terms for the same character. So this is something we frequently do in Bible storying. We simplify a story uh, if the audience, if if the complexity of the story is going to make it where the audience can't understand it, um, we sometimes will simplify or leave out some details. But we don't add any add details in that weren't found in Scripture. 
but some but occasionally you have to well frequently you have to simplify that story so that people can understand what's being said yeah and removing complexity that is not essential is is often a, a really good achievement in that regard now uh, Grant, I, to, yeah go ahead. I, I was going to say and sometimes we remove the complexity early on but as people have a greater understanding and, and knowledge of scripture, we reintroduce some of those complexities later on. So it may be that early on they learn a more of a general story, and then we could introduce those complexities as we have to flesh out the details of the meta narrative of scripture, where you're not just telling a story, but you're trying to help people understand the entirety of scripture. That just fits basic educational Absolutely. principles and process. Yeah. You start more simply, and then you add complexity as people's understanding increases. I don't think there's anything out of bounds about that at all. To take another example from the, the two temptation stories that uh, Matthew can say in his account that the devil took Jesus to, quote, the holy city, end of quote. Well, to a Jew, that phrase took him to the holy city, clearly communicated where they went. Right. Jerusalem. Yeah. But in the Gentile world, if Luke had said it exactly the same way, the devil took Jesus to the holy city, different Gentile audiences might conclude about you know different locations. Certainly yeah. among Hindus, they have the holy city. Certainly. And and so, so forth in the Greco-Roman world. They had holy cities that were so distinct, so recognized that the phrase the holy city might very well cause them to think of Ephesus or someplace like that. So you may have to have more detail. This isn't the opposite of what I was saying earlier. Sometimes you have to have more detail in the story because the audience that you're telling it to, without the extra detail, would not have the hooks to to understand what what you're talking about right so luke just says the devil took him to jerusalem you know and so forth so there's no ambiguity in what uh, what the holy city refers to he just says it, to jerusalem yeah so if you know if you say well are you telling the story exactly the way luke told it you know we we honor that, but we also honor his example. And we know that we are not writing Holy Scripture when we prepare a biblical story for telling. We've talked on previous podcasts that we regard Bible storytelling as a form of uh, proclamation. proclamation. Yeah, it's not oral recitation of Scripture. It's not oral Bible translation on the fly. Um, so these kinds of things from the pages of Scripture itself I mean, we could look at um, many other things. And one of the things that's really jarring to people who've never looked at those two stories side by side is that Matthew and Luke do not give the temptations in the same order. The second and third one are reversed in order. So which one's right? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> they each had their reasons for doing it as they did. Yeah. And, you know, people who studied it have... Uh, thoughts. I think maybe one is a little more uh, building to a crescendo than the other. 
But, you know, for the person who says, but no, you got to tell it exactly as it stands. You can't change the sequence of events, for instance. Well, at least in this case, the biblical writers, Matthew, Luke, use different sequence of events, each inspired by God, each writing an authoritative account for our guidance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not creating this problem. I'm just pointing out what the scripture itself demonstrates. And this is not the only case. It's not like this is the only instance. But again, you know, sometimes when we're crafting a story and we want it to communicate in a particular culture, it's really helpful if we sequence the biblical story's events in the way that fits the culture's way of sequencing events and the telling of a true account of actual events, things that really happened. So let me say, and we're about out of time on this episode, but let me say something about when we talk about crafting stories. We craft stories in such a way that if someone picked up a Bible and read the account of the story that we just told, that they're not going to go, well, that's not that's not what happened. Um, we're not introducing things to the story. We're not changing locations to make it more, you know, understandable. We're not saying that this happened in Atlanta, Georgia, when that's not in the scripture. So what we, what we are attempting to do is tell the story faithfully. And then if someone does uh, have a copy of God's word and they open it up, they're not going to see any, any changes that have been made. They may realize that we didn't have all the details in there, but they're not going to say, well, that's not the same story. So we're wanting to tell the same story with the same purpose so that people would be able to understand that if they did pick up scripture and read it, which we hope people, we would love for everyone to have access to God's word, uh, access to scripture, the ability to read it and the ability to process it. But we know that that is not always the case. And so sometimes the Bible stories uh, lead to people engaging scripture. And that would, that's great. That is a wonderful outcome of Bible stories. That's not always a possibility due to the lack of scripture or the lack of abilities to have access to, to God's word in a written form. Yeah. So storytelling can really pave the way that light the fire of enthusiasm for getting education, acquiring literacy, improving literacy, reading scripture, studying scripture. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot tell you how many people, educated Christian people to whom I've had a chance to, to teach Bible storytelling, who have said, I'm starting to read scripture more carefully. I'm starting to pay more attention to the details of what's in the, the text, because as a storyteller, I must know what's really there and what's not. So that there's a really natural connection between preparing to tell a biblical story or hearing one told well, that, that does, it, it points you back to the text of scripture for clarity, for exactness, for completeness. All right. Well, I think we've addressed this issue. If people still have questions, you can send those to us at orality at imb.org. We would love to interact with you, answer your questions. Um, but I think that we've addressed it pretty much how we normally answer this question when people ask it, which is pretty frequently. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please share it with others. We would really appreciate your helping us get the word out about That Reminds Me of a Story. 